This is On Location. I'm Tim Leitner. Today's episode comes to you on location from Michigan, Colorado, Montana, and Alaska. But first, On Location is produced by the NCO Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Mamlin and me. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, and Radio Public, among others. So subscribe today on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. On today's episode, Sharon Pizzuti and me have a conversation with Mary Ann Wellbank and Jeff Ball, no strangers to the child support community. They talk about their careers, their book, The Insider's Guide to Child Support, and what each of them are doing, both now in the child support community and looking ahead. Get to know each of these amazing people as we talk to them today. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is NCIA on Location. We're glad to have you along for a great conversation today. But first, introductions. My name is Tim Leitner. I'm with the Alaska Child Support Services Division up here in Anchorage, Alaska. And let me introduce you to the rest of the folks we have on today. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Coming to you live from Michigan. And uh, I'm an executive director with Cortland Consulting, started in child support. 30-some years ago on my 18th birthday uh, and uh, have worked at state, local, federal, and also obviously now consulting. So I'm glad to be here and thanks for having me. We have a couple of people that are no stranger to the child support program and certainly no stranger to child support professionals across the country and even internationally for our international listeners today. Marianne Wellbank and Jeff Ball. Let's talk for a minute. Uh, about each of you, um, who you are, where you're from, what you do in your day-to-day. Jeff, you want to take it away first? Sure. My name is Jeff Ball, and I'm a vice president with Young Williams, and my duties include overseeing projects in Colorado and Wyoming. In Colorado, I am also the project manager, so the day-to-day manager of uh, the El Paso County office, which is Colorado Springs. Thanks, Jeff. Marianne? Well, I retired from Young Williams in February 2019, and since then I formed my own little company, Marianne Wellbank LLC, and I've been fortunate to get some um, consulting jobs, and I've been working lately with public knowledge on internet intergovernmental uh, casework, some intergovernmental grants, as well as one of my favorite topics, 
distribution. And I have my aspirin and my buckets as I do that because <laughs> it takes a lot. <laughs> Those buckets uh, go a long way for many years. <laughs> child support we know all about what that reference is so uh, both of you have been in the child support program for an extended period of time Marianne it looks like you came into child support in 1991 Jeff in 87 is that correct that is yes yep and uh, what got you interested uh, into coming into child support you know what drew you in why child support why a lifer go ahead Jeff uh well it was 1987. I was a legal aid attorney in Salisbury, Maryland, and there was an ad in the paper, the, the, the actual physical thing called a paper, and it was a, an ad that was placed that way. And, and it was for an assistant director for the American Bar Association Child Support Project in Washington, D.C., and I had grown up around Washington, D.C., and so even though Salisbury, Maryland is about two and a half hours away, it, it, I was looking forward to the opportunity of possibly living in the D.C. area again. So I applied, and this woman by the name of Meg Haynes, um, uh, she interviewed me, and I was lucky enough to get the job. So that put me on a full-time child career path ever since 1987. Excellent. So good to hear about Meg Haynes influencing yet another child support colleague. Shout out to Meg Haynes if you're out there in our audience. <laughs> How about you, Marianne? Well, you know, I, I'm from Chicago originally, and I started out in the financial industry. I worked in the banking and um, commodities futures, and then we relocated to Montana to raise our children, and I started at the Workers' Compensation Division, and gosh, it didn't have the camaraderie that child support has. So then I moved on to the governor's budget office, and while I was in the governor's budget office, I had a bird's eye view of every single department in the state and knew who the directors were and knew, I don't know, knew what would be interesting to me. So when a position came open, I applied for the 4A director and I didn't get it. <laughs> but then another position came open and I applied for the 4D director. And the last um, Two people interviewed were my husband's boss and me, and I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So it since 1991, that, that's, what I, that's when I started with the Montana Child Support Division. I know. Sometimes we miss out on what we wish for most, and yet the thing that comes through is the thing that we were meant to be. We were meant to be. So that, that's great. I love that story. Yeah, you know, both of our guests, Marianne and, and Jeff, you've got a long line of, of, of accomplishments. And I just want to kind of highlight a few things here. Uh, Marianne, I've, I've got that you were the administrator and 40 director of the Montana Child Support Enforcement Division. You're just talking about that. Uh, vice president of a marketing for a private uh, child support company, author of various articles in the NCA Child Support Communique or the CSQ. You've been president of the National Council of Child Support Directors, NCCSD. You've been the president of the National Child Support Enforcement Association, our own NCIA. You've been the official observer of the Special Commission on the International Recovery Act of Child Support and Other Forms of Family Maintenance. My goodness, what a title uh, for The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, you've been the Western Interstate Child Support Engagement Council, or WICSIC, uh, on their board of directors. 
You're an honorary life member of both NCIA and WICSIC, the recipient of the Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement's Commissioner's Distinguished Service Award. Uh, and you've also got a BA in English from Illinois State University, an MBA in Finance from DePaul University. And I bet we can go on and on. Um, and then for Jeff, I've got noteworthy or noted that you manage two County 40 child support offices in Colorado. Uh, you're the regional vice president for a private entity that uh, contracts uh, to private child support services. American Bar Association's Child Support Project, you've been involved in that. Uh, legal aid lawyer in South Dakota and Maryland. General counsel to and deputy director of the U.S. Commission on Interstate Child Support. You've been an official observer to the first two drafting committees of the Uniform Interstate Family Support Act, or UFSA. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement as liaison to the Welfare Reform Task Force, senior advisor to the OCSC commissioner, OCSC technical advisor branch chief, worked in multiple states as a consultant on child support projects such as Ohio, Minnesota, Louisiana, Indiana, Kentucky, Nevada, Michigan, Florida, and North Dakota. You've been the recipient of the Eastern Regional Interstate Child Support Associations, or the, the uh, Erexa Felix and Fausto Award for Outstanding Leadership. You're a life member of Erexa, and you're a recipient of the Federal Office of Child Support Enforcement's Commissioner's Distinguished Service Award. So why am I saying all this? Why am I reading through these, these um, credentials, if you will? Really important. This really is just to demonstrate that both Marianne and Jeff are no strangers to child support. You've got a wealth of experience and knowledge in this field. And when you have written this book, The Insider's Guide to Child Support, which we will be talking about, it's really coming from a firsthand perspective, not from research and, and looking at books, but rather living it. So let me turn to our guests and, and let me just ask each of you, Jeff, what do you consider in your in your long line of, of and I don't want to call them credentials, that sounds stale, but in, in your experience in child support, what are some of your favorite um, accomplishments or favorite events that you've you've um, had in your in your career? Well, in many ways, uh, early on in my career, when I was involved in the Interstate uh, Commission, the U.S. Commission on Interstate Child Support, uh, and we were able to look at what needed to be done to reform child support, and many of the recommendations that came out of that commission made it into the uh, Perwara Act of uh, 1996. That was maybe my career highlight at that point, even though it was pretty early in my career. I was able to work with lots of people and help influence the legislation that became uh, what we needed to do at that time to give child support much more strength or teeth into uh, how, how did we go about making it a better program for all parents. And then I would say the other thing that uh, I find uh, as an accomplishment right now, I'm the chair of the Colorado Child Support Commission, and we are reviewing um, state laws and guidelines on an annual basis. And I find that exhilarating too, because we can um, uh, promote legislation to improve child support in the state of Colorado. Great. Thanks, Jeff and Marianne. What about you? It's funny that Jeff should mention Ferrara as one of his best accomplishments, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. <laughs> I consider that one of my greatest accomplishments too, and that is getting the law enacted in Montana. 
it was a long, arduous process. The bill failed. It went to 11 committees and subcommittees. The legislators actually had an audit conducted of it to see if we were being true to the, the Montana law was being true to Perora. And they added like 10,000 sunset clauses, 101 ways to make it go away. It was the very last bill of the session. It passed after the third vote in the Montana House of Representatives when the Senate had already adjourned. And one of the, one of the legislators that was for it voted against it. And then, you know, since we had all these sunset clauses, the next time they had to renew it. And that's about when I left the child support program in 2001. I couldn't take it anymore, but uh, that was a, uh, an accomplishment. Some of the other things that I'm proud of was Montana was the first state to create a privatized call center, although they don't have it anymore, a customer service center. And then contributing just off and on to the organizations and to the child support community has really been a wonderful thing to do, to get to know people and to um, contribute what I have. Awesome. And so let's let's kind of pivot into kind of why we're here today to talk about the Insider's Guide to Child Support, how the system works for parents and practitioners. And Sharon, I'm going to pass this on to you. Okay, great. As I was hearing Marianne talk, I was thinking there's not a schoolhouse rock song for child support legislation. Maybe that's an area that we could <laughs> venture into. Uh, the traditional bill songs don't seem to work, it seems, when we talk about child support legislation. So congratulations to both you um, and to Jeff for the work that you did with Perora. Um, it really uh, has changed and influenced so many families across the United States. So thank you for the work you've done. I do have a question I've always wanted to know, a burning question. Marianne, what made you want to become an author and why on this topic? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you can see I majored in English. I've always liked to write and that's actually one of my favorite parts of my current you know jobs is being able to to write and express myself and so one day Jeff and I were just having dinner with a group of people and I don't even know how we started talking about it but I he was maybe talking about a book that he had started and I said oh I'd really like to write a book on child support and we had some ideas and so we talked but I think the other reason is that as a child support director and someone who's been involved in child support, I'm going on my third decade now, is that people don't understand the system. People, uh, parents, you know, see one part of it, legislators see one part of it, everyone has an anecdotal information, but nobody has the whole picture. and. I am a firm believer, especially for parents, that they should really know what their options are. They should know how to get help when they need it. And they should know the limitations of the child support program because it does have many. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of where I was coming from. And Jeff and I decided to go forth and conquer. So we wrote our book. <laughs> and we're so glad you did. Oh my goodness. Um, Jeff, do you have anything to add to that about why, what made you want to become an author to begin with? Yeah, I, I had started uh, working on a book similar to what we ended up with. And 
I couldn't get past like it was a dark and stormy night. You know, that was about as far as I got in the book. <laughs> <laughs> and and so um, Marianne was a taskmaster, and she set uh, a schedule for us to complete the book. And I think without that leadership from Marianne, um, we're, we'd still be in the first chapter. I'd still be in the first chapter by myself. So. Not to mention the brains behind it, which was Jeff with all the legal aspects. <laughs> well, it sounds like the two of you are a perfect pair in terms of authoring and in terms of delivering a message that um, spans across so many areas of child support. Um, you know, when you guys published and released this in 2017, um, you sound like you had a lot that you hoped to accomplish. Were there any things that you can reflect on that you, you hoped came out of the book that you've since then seem come to a realization? Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking through that question and I just wanted, I, as Marianne stated, I just wanted to make sure that there was a book on the market that allowed people to access information about Title IV-D. There are plenty of books. They're usually child custody and child support together. A lot of them are how to avoid paying child support or why the child support system is terrible and everything. But very few of them delve into the special world that employs 55,000 people in 12 million cases uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, the 4D world. And as you know, we're a sub area of family law that is quite specialized. And many judges and many general practitioners are not aware of all the nuances that are in Title IV-D. And anything that we can do to not only share this information with parents, but other stakeholders in child support, I think is uh, an important thing. And I hope that we're able to accomplish that um, to some extent. Certainly the feedback that I get from my own colleagues is that they value your publication um, in so many ways, even for training and onboarding new employees, as well as um, refreshing uh, everyone who's been around child support. Um, Tim, you have some questions? I, yeah, I do. You know, I was really thinking about um, what what you've put into this this book, you know, and I really appreciate the, the one uh, chapter you have about how the system works. And I've been kind of reminded about how child support is kind of like a game, not in a not in a trivial sense, but in a in a sense of there's rules, there's a way to move forward. Um, every player has their own um, um, you know sub game to it, and it really is about how to navigate. Um, you talk about the different choices that people have from private attorneys, collection agencies, the four D programs. Why did you include all of these in your book? Why, why give all these options or talk about all these different avenues? I guess because they're out there and people use the other options. People do have the option of hiring a private attorney to move forward and never go into the 4D program. People do have the option of using a private collection agency. And people have the option of using the 4D program. And there are combinations of options. So we just wanted to set forth all these options and people can choose which is better for them. And I happen to believe that the 4D program is among the best, but there are reasons that people use private lawyers or collection agencies. And we wanted to, it, we wanted it to be objective rather than subjective. 
Yeah, the Census Bureau shows that about a third of the child support orders in the country are outside of the Title III system. And the other thing is there is a, another group of parents who just have informal agreements without getting legal child support orders. Some may be enforceable as contracts, some other ones may not. And, you know, I think if you are a parent, you have to look at all your options to see what's best for your situation. We hope that Title IV-D works for most parents, but if you have a multi-million dollar situation of two self-employed parents uh, with lots of need for forensic tax information, uh, you know, maybe you need to private attorney as well as Title IV-D, where we have some remedies that even private attorneys don't have, but you might need a private attorney as well. Well, I was going to ask, so the perspective that I have, of course, is coming from the 4D program and uh, looking at the, the staff that we have in our offices here and that the folks that I work with, I can really see this, this book as being um, really rather inspirational, putting things into perspective for folks. And I was going to ask, how can, how can we inspire? How can, how can this book, how can all of this take and inspire uh, people that are involved in the child support program? You know, I believe that child support employees are professionals and they're specialists in their area. And when you've been there a while, and I'm not saying 30 years, but when you've been there a couple of years, you begin to know all the other aspects of the program. And I don't know, I just hope that our book inspires people to explore the other areas that they're not familiar with. For example, you know, in the program, there are intergovernmental specialists, and there's people that will never know the wonderful world of intergovernmental. But the more you know, the more that you can serve your customers, the more that you can advance in the program, the more that you can go beyond your program into um, either the private sector or into leadership positions within organizations. And I just hope that, you know, people love the program and become engaged in it because there is a whole field of child support practice that you can really get to know and specialize in. Yeah, I, I would agree with Mary and the nice thing about child support, uh, help children, and it may be more of an indirect way of helping children because I don't think I've ever talked to a child in a child support office before about anything related to child support. It's all about working with their parents to make sure that the income is there so that the children can be provided for adequately. And I think that's what motivates a lot of people in child support. You know, just just thinking out loud as I as I listen to you both, it's it's really about putting things into context. Um, it's that over that broad overview, but all these specific parts and how do they fit in, and how do how do folks navigate? How do folks look at different areas? Brand new child support workers coming in, the online staff probably don't have a clue how complex all of this is, let alone the parents that are right smack dab in the middle. So I I think all of that really really fits in. Um, and, and uh, you know, this is, is such a helpful publication, such a helpful guide uh, for doing that. I agree, Tim. I think that, um, you know, I see more and more uh, child support workers coming in, new child support workers coming in 
are uh, folks that have their own cases. You know, it's almost it's near impossible to find someone who hasn't been touched by the child support program, either because they have their own case or someone in their family has a case. That's always you know, been my experience. And the more experience that we bring to bear and the more voices that we that we find that come into child support, you know, the better for us. And and just to think that, you know, parents who had the opportunity to read this book, to gather that information. And for those of you listening that are thinking about a path for employment, um, you know, you're you're talking to four lifers that uh <laughs> that that chose this path for a reason and, and hopefully we can uh you know inspire you further. Um there was a parable that um Jeff and Marianne shared on a, a recent web talk uh that talked about the blind man and the elephant. And you've shared it before, you know, I think it really got some great reception. We had wonderful feedback from our NCA audience. And I wondered if one of you would be willing to share that with us again and talk about where it came from and, and what you hope, you know, people took away from it. Sure. I'll, I'll be glad to do that. Actually, Oh, Jeff, did you want to? No, this is your brainchild, Marianne. So. <laughs> All right. Well, there is a parable that many of you probably know about the blind men and the elephant. And it's a story of a group of blind men who had never encountered an elephant, so they learned about it by touching it. And each blind man feels a different part of the elephant's body, but only one part, such as the tail, the tusk, or the ear. And then they describe the elephant based on their own limited personal experience. For example, the man touching the elephant's ear describes it as a fan. The man touching the tail describes it as a rope. The man touching the tusk describes it as a spear. And the moral of the story is that each man claims he knows the truth, even though he doesn't have the, the complete truth. And, you know, I think child support is like that with parents and with child support professionals and even attorneys who represent them, even judges. You each touch a different part of the elephant and maybe you see the iron hand of enforcement or maybe you see the helpful hand of getting money for your family. And so, I don't know, I, I kind of likened it to uh, the child support program. And in another way, elephants are big, powerful, heavy beasts with rough, thick skin and lethal tusks, but they're also gentle, they care for their families, and they communicate with each other. And child support, like an elephant, is powerful, and it can also be threatening, but it can also be gentle and communicative. And um, the bottom line is that elephants and child support professionals and us as individual people all care about our families and want to do our best for them. And uh, and one more thing, elephants do eat constantly. And having been in many child support offices, <laughs> have that in common as well. <laughs> yes, for those of you in your child support lunchrooms or in your cars, getting back <laughs> with treats for your coworkers. <laughs> I love the I love the parable, Marianne. Um, it fits in so many ways. And uh, so many of us have come to child support, you know, um, and started out um, really not even knowing how blind we were to all of it. And to be able to expand our vision and to, you know, use this parable and the, and the content from your book and just your experience, it really opens up a lot of eyes and child support certainly opened up mine. Um, I would like to uh, ask you uh, something a little more personal to you and Jeff about, you know, as you sat down and you started, you know, organizing your thoughts and 
you started to, you know, create a, a draft uh, for this book. Um, can you tell me if you had some misconceptions or myths that you were aware of, or perhaps became aware of doing your research, um, you know, with providers and, you know, to let child support uh, workers or parents uh, know about what were those myths, if you came across any? You know, I think one myth, I'll, I'll just jump in, and it isn't really a myth because Jeff and I knew it, but is that the parents have sort of a myth that child support is just enforcement and they only collect, I think the myth still exists, they only collect money to pay back welfare and just different things like that. And so we did want to explain in our book why the program exists, some of the history of the program and how it's evolved. But um, I wouldn't say we had any myths that I know of, but I can say that Jeff is the brilliant brain behind all the <laughs> the very specific legal knowledge and uh, he wrote those parts. <laughs> so I learned a lot. So please blame me for any legal inaccuracies. Duly <laughs> <laughs> <But> noted. <laughs> I, I think Marion touched on something. A lot of people say, yeah, you want to collect the money because you keep certain percentage of a certain percentage of it. And I think they're looking at traditional debt collectors and debt collectors do keep a percentage of the money or even in private child support collection when it's not a 4D uh, program, they do keep a percentage of the collection. But anybody uh, who operates in Title 4D, of course, does not keep the child support money, any percentage of it. And I don't believe there's any private contract uh, remaining of those who are contracted to be 4D offices where uh, the company is rewarded with a percentage of uh, the uh, collections. It's all really more um, fixed price or performance based, based on the federal indicators that drive all state offices anyway. So there's a misguided impression that all we want to do is maximize child support and do whatever we can to collect to enrich ourselves, which isn't true. I think there's definitely some specific areas of the book that we wanted to get into and talk about um, that include both, you know, the federal law citations and other other specific instances that maybe our listeners might want to hear a little bit more about. So with that, um, Tim. Yeah, I was just going to ask, you know, in, in, in your book, you go quite a long ways to cite some federal laws and regulations. Um, you talk about the Child Support Recovery Act of 1992, uh, the Deadbeat Parents Punishment Act of 1998. The Social Security Act for the title uh, for Title 4D. You talk about the Uniform Parentage Act of 2002, and there's there's others listed in the in the book. I'm just kind of curious. Um, you, you know, you didn't just come in to give you know your own opinions or citations to back you up. You really brought in specific laws about child support. I'm just going to ask you, why was it important for you to include these references in your book? I. To me, the reason was that you would have a common understanding of where all these laws came from, that there was an immense amount of congressional activity between 1988 and 1998 in child support. 
And it was because the program was, I wouldn't say broken, but it wasn't doing that well. And there were several years where legislation was passed to improve the, the program. And uh, we pretty much have the world that was created in the 90s now. And, you know, a lot of people say it's time to revise uh, that to make it more 21st century focused, but um, we're still living in a world that was created probably a generation ago. And each state has to follow the federal laws. I think that's another thing that people, there's a misunderstanding about what that means. These laws are not plenary, except for things like FACSO or the Federal Full Faith and Credit for Child Support Orders Act um, is something that just automatically applies to all the states. All the Title IV-D legislation says a state must pass this or they risk losing their 4A and 4D funding. So it's kind of different. And then it's up to OCSE to determine if what was passed by a state is close enough to what the federal requirements are that they can say, yes, that meets the federal requirement. And that's where the, the federal regional professionals come into play in, the, in that situation. And Marion, I know you face that as the director of Montana. True, yes. That, and I think the other reason they're in there is for child support professionals and attorneys to know where, to know the history of our ancestry, <laughs> where all these things happened, why they happened. And it's not just a, a quick decision of the agency. There are reasons behind it. Yeah, there are um, each state, you know, is under their own their own state laws, but they have their Title 40, their federal um, regulations that they have to adhere to. And so I think that, you know, you guys have talked about what happens with, uh, with child support when a parent with children's on public assistance, TANF, and um, you gave a roadmap of what started out as cost recovery and now what can be expected um, from the child support office. In that chapter where you went over that about opening cases was it difficult? Um, did you take into account the pressure and impetus there is behind opening a case and the kind of um, you know thoughts, fears, and feelings uh, that go into opening a case, um, especially for parents that uh, have TANF involved? Well, I think one way word spreads, the biggest way word spreads in, in child support enforcement program is through anecdotal information. One parent hears what another parent hears and then <laughs> <laughs> legislators hear what they hear and pretty soon there's a skewed view of the program. So we wanted right. to explain objectively and in lay terms what a parent can expect, what the program can do and not do, and what the parent's responsibilities are if they open a case or if they have a case being in the 4A program as well. So we just tried to set forth the um, what they can expect. Right. And and if you look at our program, it really has evolved. In 1975, the program wasn't set up for either parent. It was set up to do cost recovery of, uh, back then it was called Aid to Families with Dependent Children. And uh, it wasn't until the um, 80s that the program opened up to non-welfare cases, but there was still an emphasis on TANF cases. Uh, the name TAMA came about in 1996. But what's happened since is we're trying to pass through as much as we can to parents 
so that these cases that are TANF cases no longer uh, maybe are um, relegated to a lower status in our caseloads. We work them as hard as any other case in Colorado because in Colorado, it's a full pass-through of current support to the family on TANF. So those cases now it are as important, if not, you could make an argument in some cases more important than uh, the traditional non-4A cases that we work uh, because this helps a family get off of assistance by providing them the extra child support. And uh, it's proven to be uh, pretty successful in Colorado. And I, I know that there are other states interested in this, but it's, uh, it, it is part of the progress that we're making along the way of going from a total cost recovery program to a program that treats people who receive TANF equally with people who don't receive TANF and to give them the opportunity to collect their child support just as much as anyone else. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the fact that you bring that up and the fact that Colorado has the full pass through, other states may or may not, and the fact that our NCA community um, allows for those conversations to take place, that really is um, the beauty for me and NCA is having those connections with all of you from where you're coming from different states and being able to learn what works, what doesn't, what challenges did you encounter? How can I improve the child support program in my area? Um, you know, and then to be able to have that information readily available to each other to offer that and to make improvements across the program. I think that's really um, one of the most powerful things about being part of the NCA community. And um, I got to thinking about, you know, performance measures and all the different discussions that we've had about performance measures and the performance measures you list in the book, you know, that um, allow us to explain how uh, we receive matching dollars, how we get incentive monies, um, how child support is funded. Um, specifically um, in those measurements, uh, both in your book and in our NCA conversations, we've talked about paternity establishment, order establishment, percentage of cases that are paid current child support, percentage of cases with arrears collections, uh, cost effectiveness. Of course, uh, the 157 report and self-assessments that are, um, you know, uh, very difficult at times for each state. You know, why was it important to really take this piece and put it into your book? What did you want to make sure that this content um, brought to your readers? Why is it there? Uh, Marianne, do you want to start? <laughs> well, it, you know, it's just part of the big picture. We wanted people and child support professionals to understand what what is measured. And as Jeff said before, it's not just collections. It, it's part of the program. It's an important part of the program because these are states' goals. This is how they get their incentive money. This is every child support worker's goals for now until they they change, but they're in place now and we wanted people to understand it. We didn't go in detail about every single component of every single formula, but we had a, a, general, a general understanding of it. So parents would understand the importance of establishing paternity. They'd understand that, that states, are, one of their goals is to establish a support order. Another goal is to collect a support order. Yeah, and in this way, people know what really motivates a, an office, whether it's a local office or at the state level, and and how uh, good performance in these indicators can result in additional dollars to the state if they do real well vis-a-vis uh, -vis the other states. 
Absolutely. And, um, and it's good for, I think, uh, everyone to be reminded that everything is controlled by these performance measures in terms of the fine, uh, funding for our child support offices. And that if you see something that's in those performance measures that you, you know, have reason to, you know, want to modify, um, that the conversation, you need to know the groundwork. And I think this book really helped us to, to learn that groundwork so that we can all have a, a more intelligent conversation about the things that we want to change or the things that we think that are working. Tim, I think you had some things you wanted to go over um, about chapter 15. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with this this chapter um, even being inserted into the book. And I, I really want to give you uh, both Jeff and Marianne kudos on this. Um, chapter 15 is on effective ways to raise issues, concerns, and complaints. It's not often that we invite others to complain or to raise their um, um, I don't want to say rebellion, but you know, raise their real issues or real know problems and you've given a real roadmap about how to do this effectively so it's not just a complaint but how can i get help so what what was your thinking around putting this in there to to let um parents those paying support those receiving support know how to really be heard well you know tim uh it seems like one thing we want to do is if, if people have questions or they're uh, or concerns about their cases there should be an opportunity for them to redress those concerns or issues. And the longer that we suppress those, the more it builds up and it can blow up really ugly. And so it's much better if there are outlets for parents to communicate with people right away, whether it's an escalation from a case manager to a lead or supervisor, something like that, just to get maybe a little more experience involved in answering a question. Um, sometimes people shop just like, uh, you know, they don't like one answer, so they go to somebody else for another answer. And maybe that uh, reaffirming of the original answer uh, is sufficient. And then we tell people about how to escalate when you're unhappy with the results. We, we did that also because we do have cases where somebody doesn't like something and they go to uh, the governor's office uh, immediately. You know, they skip like about 10 levels before they, you know, they just want it resolved from top down. I, I got to say that is a, an effective way because when you hear from the governor's office, you do respond, not that you don't any other way, but it in some ways it is effective, but it, it isn't the most productive for the governor's office and staff either. So we try to have it bubble up rather than come from top down. And I'm sure Marianne got her share of governor's uh, calls or, or emails. Yeah, you know, I was kind of laughing, though. Some people do go directly to the governor's office, but at least in Montana, when they went to the governor's office, I wrote the letter on behalf of the governor. So I would go back down to the caseworker, find out what happened. The letter would go up from the caseworker to the the regional manager, and then would come to me, and I'd review it, and sometimes, you know, add add information but i think what they don't realize it's <laughs> you're going to get the same answer most of the time but i have had experiences where customers we had one uh, man a, lo a long time ago in montana he kept complaining and complaining and complaining and i can't remember the topic of his complaint but it finally got up to me and I reviewed the case file, and in fact, the caseworker hadn't realized 
that even though he didn't put it in the correct terms, he was really requesting a hearing based on an action that we had taken against him. And he didn't know the right terms. The caseworker didn't know the right terms. So we had to go back and give him the hearing. But sometimes complaints are valid. And the other thing as a 4D director, what I learned is what we're doing. I mean, by answering complaint letters, you can learn what you're doing in the program, what things are working, what things are, aren't, um, which caseworkers may explain a little more and have fewer complaints. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things you can pick up, but I actually loved responding to complaint letters. <laughs> Well, that's that's crazy. It's 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 incredible the amount of complaints I think that uh, we get. But I think that's part of life because we're dealing with people's emotions, their children, their money. Um, I wanted to what it uh, kind of focus in on too is you you also stocked into um, this book a lot of resources for people, and and not just practitioners or those practicing child support working cases, but also families that may not know anything about um, these resources to to let them see the bigger picture, such as the Intergovernmental uh, Reference Guide, the IRG, the um, Federal Office of Child Support's websites and general contact information that they share on their website, the Electronic Code of Federal Regulations, um, and the websites focusing on research and data and child support terms uh, and glossary toward the back of the book. Those things are really, really helpful. And I think um, that sometimes we forget that those exist and some people don't know they exist at all. How did you get all that stuff and why did you why did you put that in there? I think Jeff and I don't claim to um, be original creators of the program. <laughs> we knew all this information was out there and uh, and when it's out there, it's just hard to find sometimes. Sometimes the OCSE website is a little difficult to navigate. Sometimes individual states have information on their website that people just don't know the right terminology or where to look. And so we knew that there's a lot of stuff out there, but people just need to be able to find it. Our book isn't the only thing in the world as a resource. It just puts it together in lay terms that's easy to find in a, a paperback copy book. But there is so there's a wealth of information out there. You just need to know where to look, and not many people do. Thank you. So as, as we kind of get toward the end of our time here, we've got some, some I won't call them rapid fire, but some easy questions that, that are just curious questions. So I'm just going to start these out. So I've got to ask, out of all the stuff that's in there, out of the stuff we talked about today, what didn't make the cut? Something had to be on the editing floor. I think we did not write a lot on the Hague Convention and all the different international cases. And when we were writing it, my thought was, there are not that many cases out there that are international. And it is so complicated that that chapter could be 50 pages by itself if you really wanted to be much more thorough. So we were trying to give an overview there without going into much detail about the international cases. And, and I think the same, well, not quite the same, um, but we didn't write a lot about child support in um, tribal programs. And Jeff and I don't claim to be experts on that, but we did want 
parents to know that they do have programs and that they're available and they operate a little differently than state programs, but they're a good resource for parents who are tribal members or living on tribal lands. And then I've got to ask too, so so from the first time you started talking about this project together and when you, um, you know, took the pen or the pencil or, you know, the, the laptop out from start to finish, how long did it take you to write this, to write it, to edit it and, and to put the pen down? How long did that take you? <laughs> Three years, Marianne, would you say? I think maybe more like two, but, you know, Jeff and I work in different states. Fortunately, we have the internet and we're able to communicate, but our deadlines were always which conference is coming up next because that's when we get to see each other. And so we'd not do anything, not do anything, and then we'd hurry up and get our chapters done before the NCA leadership or before the NCA policy forum. And uh, I think that was our motivating factor. As conferences went by, we realized that we better get this done. <laughs> And then toward the end, uh, we had our uh, manuscript ready, and then Marianne took on the world of uh, publishing. And that is not an easy world to navigate, and she did a great job figuring out what we needed to do to get this book published. Yeah, yeah I think we went through like um, at least 15 or 20 drafts on, um, it was Create Space at the time for Amazon Books. And that was really difficult because Jeff and I are both sort of perfectionists and you look at something that you think was a finished version and then you find a typo in it <laughs> or something was out of order. So it took us a lot of drafts to, to finally review it. But if anyone finds a spelling error, please let me know. <laughs> and, and part of the reason why we don't have a lot of illustrations and graphs and so forth is because it does get very difficult when you publish a manuscript to make sure it doesn't look awkward. And you know, uh, you know about the like the widow's sentences and paragraphs popping up on the next page and things like that. You, so it's much harder to format if you had a lot of non-text content in the, in the book too, even yeah. though it would jazz it up more. Well, I have to ask, what was your reaction when you got your first copy of your book in your hands? Each of you, just in a few words, do you remember the day when it came in the mail and it, uh, the proof was there? <laughs> my first copy of my book, I looked at and realized it had an error in it. So we quick back, went back and republished it. <laughs> so you had tears for a different reason. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Jeff, do you it, remember your first reaction? Uh, it was odd to see our names on the book, you know, when it when it comes out. Uh, hey, that's me. Uh, and it, there's a, a big sense of achievement when you publish a book. I wrote a novel, too, recently, and it really was a journey of inner exploration when you do something like that. And it was true with the first book, too. Uh, when when uh, we wrote this nonfiction book, we learned a lot about ourselves, I think, and maybe a little bit more about the program. 
Yeah, because some areas we actually had to research more than others. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and footnote it and reference it. I wish we had your distribution knowledge back then, Marianne. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've become quite an expert in quotes <laughs> on distribution. <laughs> Good. I um, would love to know what each of you are now doing currently in the child support community. And what's the plans for the, for the two of you? Is there another book on the horizon? What's the next step? You know, if your audience wants to suggest ideas, we're all for it. If there's an area that they would like more information on, we were almost thinking of maybe dividing it into pamphlets or doing something else. And, you know, the one thing about our book right now, it was published in 2017, but absolutely everything is still current in it. But if the laws start changing or some of the regulations start changing, there, there are some opportunities there. One of the things that I had suggested at one time, but we're not going to go forward with it, is do you remember when OCSE used to publish the attorney's handbook? Mm -hmm. Our 40 attorneys, I was thinking, well, that might be an interesting thing. But, you know, right now our book is an international bestseller, so I don't know that we need to go any further. <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> My dad joke is that between the Bible and our book, we've sold over a billion copies. So <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, what's next for you, Jeff? What are you what are you thinking? <laughs> well, you know, my big thing right now, I I'm on the high horse about um making sure that we become less of a bureaucratic focused program and become more of a customer focused program and technology will really get us there. I think once we really develop a foolproof mobile app and let self-service become the predominant way of doing business for a lot of people and we become less involved in the legal system the way it's currently constructed but a more of a mediation program and allow parents who uh, are not victims of domestic violence to be able to negotiate terms uh, that they can agree to. That is where we need to go with the program and make it less of an antagonistic uh, situation. The other thing that bothers me about child support is that um, we had to make this decision in the early 1990s, late 1980s, that we didn't represent anybody. And we represent, well, we didn't represent either parent. We represent the state of whatever or the county of whatever. Uh, that gets us off the hook a lot. And it means that we're not responsible a lot for the, um, the different aspects of a case that impact families on a regular basis because we have mass case processing and we don't always see cases and life changes. And we said, well, you know, that's not our problem. That's for the parent to bring up. And I think what we need to do is figure out a way where we're not the attorneys for either parent, but we also are responsible for making sure we are fair to both parents on a daily basis, not just when their case comes up in our queue again. Uh, so that's what I'd like to work on, that kind of stuff.
Excellent. And I have to give a shout out to, I know in Michigan, we're looking at using a mediation more broadly in um, uh, family court matters. And um, in fact, I'm doing some research on it right now, a process and an impact evaluation on how it's being used. And uh, as I get that, I'll be sure to share it with you. Um, right. You know, it, it looks at also using non-discriminatory and non-adversarial languages uh, as well. Um, you know, many of our laws and policies, as you both know, all three of you know, um, were not written um, at a time that we're, um, you know, respectful of, of everyone that uses the system. And so, um, you know, looking at those and, and making more equity and more, um, you know, positive impact changes uh, in child support. It's so good to know that the two of you are leaders in the industry and that your, you know, uh, your voices are heard. And I just encourage you to share more uh, and to, to be more present. We need leadership um, like yourselves. And uh, so thank you so much for, um, Certainly, whether you knew it or not, being mentors uh, of mine and um, people that I admire and respect. Tim, you have some things that you want to make sure to <laughs> wrap up with them and some thoughts and reflections. Well, just as, as we wrap up, I, I just want to remind folks that this has been NCA on location. And again, want to thank our guests today, Marianne Welbank and Jeff Ball, for taking the time today to have a discussion, an engaging discussion, uh, and for a glimpse and a fresh take on the Insider's Guide to Child Support. Thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do in the child support community and for NCIA. We want to thank our listeners today for listening in. Thank you again. So until next time, we look forward to talking to you on the NCIA on Location podcast. On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our previous episodes as well. We also appreciate your ratings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. On Location is a production of the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Mamlin and me. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Tim Leitner, and this has been On Location.